Hello, my name is Christopher Johnson, reporter from CTY Wealth Manager. Welcome to this episode of The Wealth Show, live from the Four Seasons in Hampshire. I'm joined by Trevor Williams, former Lloyd's Chief Economist, who spoke to us today. Thank you so much for being here with me. A pleasure. Thank you for having me for this interview, Richard. So, uh, my first question to you is, um, emerging markets are coming back to the forefront and in your um, presentation you talked a lot about Africa and emerging Asia. How essential will they be in the green transition? Hugely so. Um, Asia, because it's going to be one of the biggest users of uh, energy, Um, it's the fastest growing part of the world, Um, it's got the biggest population, so if you add the population of China and India for example, alone together in Asia, uh, you will, you're clearly going to get uh, 2.8 billion people out of a global population of 8 billion. And on top of that, of course, you've got big populations in um, Pakistan and Bangladesh uh, and Japan, so in Vietnam, right? So none of these countries have small populations. So the economic geography of the world in terms of where the demand for the... Uh, the, the products of the agricultural sector and manufacturing, so where the production of all of the, much of the world's goods come from will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore the demand for energy will be huge. And so they have a big role to play climate-wise. Um, they are expanding quickly because they're poor. Yeah. Um, as you know, in my presentation, I pointed to the fact that um, although China is the second largest economy in the world in terms of gross output, just behind the US. Um, because it has 1.4 billion people, it's, 70, it's uh, 79th richest in the world. 79th. It's got a long way to go before it matches the US, which is number nine in the world. So in other words, their per capita income of the average Chinese is just one, uh, two-fifths of that of the average American. So... Um, you think about how much economic development that is going to be required to get them to be at the US level, and you begin to realise they're going to be using a lot more energy, um, they're going to be burning a lot more fossil fuels, or if, if they don't um, uh, begin to use solar and, uh, and wind and nuclear. So the, the, the damaging effects of, the, of that development on the world will be much bigger, um, coming from a low base, of course. And you also mentioned in the presentation about savings and um, more people, because there'll be more people, there'll be more yes. people with money to spend yes. and invest in green energy. Yes, yes. So um, on the one hand, the huge demand uh, for um, uh, energy requirements and for the products that a society needs in the modern world will be in that part of the world, They're generating most of, of global growth at the margin. Um, but it also is an area with an aging population. China's population is, is aging. Japan's population is aging. Globally, population is aging. So you're, you're right. What does this mean? Uh, as populations age, people save more. They save for retirement. In, so when we think about it like this, between the age of, say, particularly um, uh, 24 to, say, 54, you're saving for retirement. After um, 65, you start to run down your savings. But so as the world is aging, the population that is saving mm. is grown enormously. So we know that global savings have gone up. The pool of savings has increased enormously. We can see it, we can measure it. 
Uh, and what that means is that there are funds that are going to be held by pension funds, insurance companies, asset managers, banks themselves, which needs to be intermediated. In other words, wealth managers are going to have to find assets to put that money in that will give those savers a return. Yeah. That's an opportunity to perhaps invest some of that in the greening and carbon technologies of the future and or of the present, but also of the future. And on demographics, I mean, how can we have a fair discussion around it when what is politically expedient may not match up to the economic reality? How, how do we do that? I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and just for the audience to know, what we're referring to is the fact that as the world's population is aging, it's aging fastest uh, in the advanced economies of the US, uh, of Japan, uh, of many European countries, of the UK. We're beginning to see that now. Uh, there's a shortage of workers um, because the, um, the, uh, we're having fewer uh, children to replace those that are, are dying. So our populations are shrinking. Those in the working age population are starting to decline. So now we're seeing that across all skill sets, um, there is a shortage of key workers. So let's take the UK, for example. Uh, and I quoted this in the presentation. Uh, last year, the UK uh, had more doctors come from abroad than came out of its medical schools. There are 100,000 or so shortage of nurses, a shortage of construction workers, a shortage of fruit pickers, a shortage of <laughs> a whole range of care workers. Uh, but there's a political issue around how you fix this. It means maybe you have to accept more migrants, but actually the political climate against migrants is very negative. So there's an economic need for people to fill the skill gaps that the UK's got against the political pressure to not um, accept any more migrants. Now, this is partly because in the UK, we don't build enough homes. If you are going to have an expanding population in certain areas, you've got to put the infrastructure in place, the schools, the medical centres. Of course, they may be coming to work in, to, in those schools and medical centres and be able to build them, but you have to put them in these areas. So there's this economic imperative, but the political challenge is how do you do that in a way which serves the economy, but doesn't disrupt to local people what seems as accentuating the difficulties that they have in their daily lives. Yeah. So there's a big problem here. I was interested when I was doing research on you, you attended the Black Brexit conference. Yes. And one of the things that was discussed there was people thought that post-Brexit, it could allow for the UK to have maybe a tighter or um, stronger ties, economic ties with um, the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, do you see this happening? And do you think that um, also Britain could play a greater role in helping former colonies in their um, their fight to, to um, transition to a green economy? Uh, yeah, look, I, uh, great question, uh, actually. I, I think that um, what I said at that conference was that um, you would have thought that it would be easier for the UK to justify and to explain to its constituents that because the UK historically has strong links with the countries um, 
that were part of its its former empire, uh, so now part of the Commonwealth. Whether or not they have the, the monarch as a head of state doesn't really matter. They still economically have these ties of, of history uh, to the UK, um, that it'd be easier to, say, allow some of those people to export goods to the UK, uh, maybe for the UK as well, to allow people from those countries that it might need to come and work here. Uh, and so to deepen its economic ties with these countries. And, and that's what we thought would happen uh, at this conference, and this at least what some people saw as a potential benefit, given some of the negatives around it, that the UK needed to forge deeper economic links with non-EU countries, and what better maybe than countries that it's got strong historical links with. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that's a work in progress. Okay. And in regards to Britain being able to help these countries in, in, in their fight to a green transition, do you see them having, you know, playing a role as well? Or? Well, it's a great point. I don't know uh, if it's going to be an easy role to play because I suspect that the UK is going to be pulled in different directions. On the one hand, uh, if it's subsidising countries um, that are suffering from the effects of climate change, for example, some of the Caribbean islands might be prone to flooding and, 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 uh, uh, and extreme weather. Uh, and does it, how does it help them to become um, uh, adapt to that um, by building protection against uh, some of the, uh, the waves that may wash up on the coast, for example? Um, does it allow, uh, does it give them subsidies to transition to perhaps uh, more uh, solar panels, uh, use of wind uh, technology, um, and so on? Uh, I, I think those are the ways it could help. Uh, maybe allow them to earn um, maybe greater revenue by exporting tariff-free to the UK, which a lot of them would prefer. So don't subsidise us, don't don't give us aid, just simply allow us to export more of our goods to you free of any um, import duties so that we can earn this money and therefore we can then use that money to help ourselves. And economically, as an economist, I think that's a far better way of doing it uh, to allow tariff-free access into the UK market, allow people to move freely to the UK too, to work if there's jobs available. I think that's the best way of helping economic development in these Commonwealth countries. We're leaving them a better able to deal with the consequences of climate change themselves. In your presentation, you also discussed technological changes and how important that they will be in, in the green transition. I wanted to get your perspective on AI. It's been talked about a lot. Um, do you have any concerns around AI? Do you think it will be uh, really important in, in helping us transition to a green economy? I think it's key for us to transition to a green economy. We need to, new technology to, to help us to do stuff smarter, quicker. I always have this an, uh, analogy. You know, we build cars, planes, ships to travel more quickly, much more quickly than if we walked. <laughs> so we need machines to, make us, to help us think to help solve, solve problems, to do it quicker than we could do it, uh, to automate a process, uh, to aid us. Uh, that's what the technology allows us to do. So why are we afraid of helping getting these machines that we're producing, uh, we've come up with, to help us to think, to solve some of the problems that we have, um, to come up with new forms of medicines, to come up with a quicker way of spotting cancer and maybe coming up with new ways of combining different medicines together to help to solve some of the problems. We've created them to help us do those things, just as we created machines to help us to dig more, 
to dig more, to carry more loads, to get around more quickly, to heat our homes, to keep our homes cool, to light our homes. We built stuff to do that. So we should similarly want to do that for these technologies. Now, I think that they, um, they're not thinking uh, machines yet. Uh, there's specific uh, process to, to processes that they will be aimed at. Um, and I think it's unavoidable. Uh, I think it's called progress. Uh, it's called, this is taken, uh, this is a cumulative effect of the age of science and the age of technology. And so I think um, we cannot stop this. This is natural progress. We've got to embrace it and come up with new rules if there are challenges around it. But we have to use these machines to solve the problems that we have uh, living on a planet with scarcer resources. Uh, to help us to use those resources more efficiently, to plan better. And how do you envision the regulatory framework adapting also to kind of take into account the technological advancement that we're seeing that is clearly necessary? Yeah, and again, uh, again a great point. You know, we need the, uh, the regulatory environment, the, the political environment, um, the, uh, the way that we do things. Um, on the regulatory issue more specifically, I think... Uh, it comes in very many different buckets, right, in my opinion. So, for instance, you need um, the uh, financial regulatory environment. Let me speak to that first. This is wealth managers listening in uh, to this call. That the uh, pension funds, the um, insurance companies and other asset uh, companies are going to have to have the... Uh, permission almost, absolutely, actually, the specific permission uh, of regulators to invest in, in some of these projects because they might be risky, they might be short term. Um, you know, they want, regulators want to protect those who have put money in these wealth managers. Um, so do they change the rules to allow investments in technologies that are incipient, that are new technologies? I think they will. Um, Will they allow more investments in some of the infrastructure thing? I think they will. Will they allow more investments in, in some of the longer-term energy requirements that we have, wind farms and solar and modular nuclear? I think they're going to have to because public money is not enough. Public money sets a baseline uh, to subsidise this, um, but a regulatory environment has to make it possible in the rules and the constitution of the companies that are structured to manage our wealth. In a world where we are going to grow, we're going to see an aging population. The pool of savings around the world would rise. Therefore, the money which is held in wealth managers is going to rise exponentially. That money has to go somewhere and give them a decent return because they, in turn, have to pass that on to those that are putting this money in, in them because they want that money to insure them against risk, but also as pensions for when they retire. So it's complex, but actually it's a comprehensible way of thinking in, about this do exist. And in a TED talk, you uh, discussed how negative rates increase innovation. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get your perspective on uh, greenflation. What do you think about um, that term and the challenges that it, it may pose? Yeah. So um, two, two points you made there, Richard. If I may say, uh, what, so the first bit about uh, if you have a big increase in the pool of, of savings, it means that return on savings will fall. Yeah. Uh, because if the supply of something increases, what you pay for it declines. 
So if the pool of savings increases, the return, return on your savings are going to, to decrease, right? So you, know, you may have to save more to get the same return. Uh, just as firms who have money uh, in an environment where rates are negative, to get high returns, they have to invest more of the um, capital that they have to get a sum at the end of it that is the one that they're uh, comfortable with. So that's, that's one point. That's why we have negative rates, it seems to me, uh, because of the abundance of wealth being created. In other words, the money to be able to transition to a green economy is already there. We now need a regulatory background to allow this money to flow into investable assets created by the wealth managers. Mm. That's what I think needs to be done. Now, to the, to the last point you made, green inflation, uh, clearly uh, in the incipient phase of the shift to these new technologies, yeah. there's not going to be enough investable assets. Absolutely. So we're going to be driving up the price of those investable assets to maybe levels that aren't economic, levels that don't give you decent returns. Day one say, maybe with negative rates of return on, on some of these, but you have to hold positions in them because in the long run, those positions will pay off and at least they're giving you a return, even if it's a nominal return, rather than a return that when you adjust for inflation is a negative one. On the green transition and in the talk, I think uh, one of the delegates asked you about mineral usage and obviously we're going to have to be taking, you know, um, rare metals, natural resources, raw materials out of the ground Indeed. in order to, you know, produce electric vehicles, batteries and so Indeed. forth. How can we ensure that we are doing this sustainably and we're, you know, still protecting the environment and, you know, protecting those communities that may face, you know, the detrimental economic impact of us going in to, you know, taking the natural resources from the ground? I think it's part of what we should do with ESG, right? I think it should live up to its name. There's the social consequences of it. We should minimise um, the environmental consequences of it. Yeah. We should minimise. We have to pay for that. Uh, I think these things should be costed properly. Uh, the environment must be protected. That's the point. We want planet Earth to be sustainable. We want to do things in a way which is ecologically sustainable. Uh, so I do think that we uh, have to have to... Uh, I mean, it's got to be ethical. Yeah. For me, that's the key word, okay? Uh, and I think, therefore, uh, it may cost us. Um, but these costs will pay off in the end because, as I said, the technology should allow us to increase our productivity. And what's productivity? We get more for less. We're more efficient. We are seeing some of that, by the way, in the energy intensity of production. That's a sign of productivity. In other words, our increase in GDP now uses less energy than previously. So we're becoming more energy efficient when we produce a unit of output. That's a sign that the investment in the technologies that are producing uh, output, goods and services, we're now doing it in a less damaging, energy damaging intensive way. So we're using less fossil fuels to do it. So I think we're, we're, we're already transitioning. We need to deepen and encourage the pace of that transition by encouraging money to flow into the technologies and into the industries that are affecting this change. And in your presentation, you spoke about, you know, that there are so many opportunities within this space. So what opportunity are you most excited about? Oh, so many. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by tech. Uh, I, I, I really love uh, AI and what it could mean. 
Um, I, I'm waiting for quantum computers, which I think will be a game changer as well. You know, this is based on basically old technology. Mm. You know, even the machine learning and the AI, this is, this is not using a quantum computer that thinks thousands of times, if not millions of times quicker. So, you know, I'm excited by the pace of technological change. Uh, you know, uh, I'm particularly excited by space travel and I'd love to go to the moon and I'd love to go. <laughs> That's what I'd love to do. I really want to, you know, before I depart this earth, I'd love to go into orbit around planet earth and have a look at it. <laughs> uh, Trevor, thank I you. Look so at the oh, blue planet. Yes. <laughs> Trevor, thank you so much for taking the time to pleasure. speak to me. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time.